0: listening to Our World is Local with Nick Kilby and Heather
1: Jameson. Welcome to Our World is Local with me, Nick Kilby from Kratos and...
2: Me, Heather Jameson from the MJ.
1: Well, it's silly season in the newspapers. And I was very excited to read how silly it's now getting. Because the residents of Sandwich in Kent are upset that they've just got a nice new amount of paving in their town centre. And it's just a different grey.
2: It Well, yes
1: It's greyer in Sandwich in Kent
2: Yes, and it's not like we haven't had enough grey this summer
1: no. no It's been a lot of summer, hasn't it? It has. it has And I discovered that there were car chargers in Dorset so far That's my great revelation Is that you can drive in an electric car to Dorset And find car chargers in all their seaside resort car parks
2: But you are slightly obsessed by car chargers
1: if you own an electric car, I promise you, you get obsessed about whether you're going to be able to charge <laughs> the thing up again. But anyways, it's a good start. It's a good start because it's better than some streets in London.
2: Well, they do need to be all over the place if actually targets are going to be met, don't they?
1: They do. The, the role of uh, local government in climate change is being discussed in the silly season. I, I thought that was encouraging considering the government has been messing about on whether it believes it can afford climate change.
2: Well, it's like it's one of those, can you, not, can you afford not to cli- do anything on climate change, isn't it?
1: It is. And then I was also intrigued by another story, which is sort of building a bit of momentum, is that a lot of people, I don't know what the problems are with this, because I don't own any other property, but people who have bought buy-to-lets, which were yep. a big thing for the, the housing sector, people buying off plan and actually giving confidence that a development could be sold when it was built, A lot of people are selling, and they're losing £10,000 a flat because they're selling because the tax issues have changed and everything else. And I just remember back in the days when I was a councillor, which is now getting more and distant, that we relied on, at that time, in 2006 to 2010, 900 privately owned flats. And some of those were buy-to-lets because the council paid a return on investment that was actually, if it was not a brand new flat, was actually a good return. So I wonder what the supply is now looking like for those councils that need to look outside their own stock and housing associations. It must be pretty poor.
2: Well, so we're doing quite a lot of stuff on the pressures on that on housing at the moment and as you can imagine it's not just that it's it's all these people who are turning up as homeless because they can't afford the rents it's the government's policy of getting afghan refugees out of hotels yeah. there is i mean the housing market is fundamentally broken and every, and there is layer upon layer upon layer of problems and that's just you've identified just one of them.
1: Just one of them. And the local authorities, which I don't think that many people know until they find themselves in the situation, have a duty to home you. Yeah. And that must be one of the most terrifying aspects of their role at the moment because there are also, with the interest rates going up, some people who are really struggling to pay their mortgages. Yep. Yeah. And if the mortgage provider does not support the mortgage holder, there could be even more people being thrown out of their homes.
2: Well, it's it's mortgages and the rising costs of private rented sector. Yeah, which
1: because of the cost of the borrowing.
2: And that's exactly, so it's a vicious circle.
1: Yeah. No, so it's, nothing is easy for local government, is it? No. Nope. And then I heard there was a whole thing about they weren't doing enough about noise. Noise, OK. LBC was obsessed with noise
2: right what and, noise well rowdiness in the summer right
1: and actually it reminds me again going back many years we had two streets in lovely leafy surbiton which in the summer had turned into complete nightmares because we had inadvertently allocated housing yep. to too many vulnerable people in that one area and as soon as the nice weather came out and people started relaxing, enjoying the, the, the weekend heat wave, they started turning into bedlam on the streets as people got rather carried away with whatever they were enjoying. And it it is a big job. And I thought there was one particular council officer, I can't remember her name, was fantastic explaining the whole system to the journalist, who I'm not sure really cared, but it was getting people exercised, phoning in. And it is a long job of policing, with the noise, with dogs and animals, and some people complaining about things that you can't change, which was one person uh, apparently complained about a baby crying. Right. That was annoying them. And her response was, well, the good news is it will grow up. Yes. Which I thought was great, because what do you say? There's a baby crying, and the windows are open in their house, and it's annoying you. Well, but, I'm sorry about that.
2: Yeah, I think anyone who is a parent can sympathise with that. Well, Tony
1: sympathise, probably have a drink with the person next door, <laughs> but to complain to the council about baby crying, I thought was a little over the top. But there we go. And, and then a, a town, Froome. You yep. say they've got form.
2: Froome. Froome yep. has got form. Froome has got form, yeah.
1: They're complaining that the Londoners have caused the housing crisis in Somerset.
2: Yeah. So this has been going on for years, hasn't it? The the holiday homes issue. Yeah. Second homes. And it does drive people out of rural areas. You know, Wales, Cornwall, everyone can But I've them.
1: just been camping uh, for a, a few days and you're in this holiday resorts and everything. And what about all these holiday lets that people make money out of yeah. and actually want the people to go there? But they're not full all the time, are they? No. Nope. So it's not, just the whole, it's not just the second homes. It's also this holiday-let business, which is a massive business, isn't it?
2: Yeah, Airbnb are causing just as many problems as, as people buying second homes, probably more so, I would have thought now.
1: Yeah. But, but is... again,
2: that comes back down to the, the the buy-to-let issue, doesn't it? I mean, Airbnb will be effectively the same as, buy, as buy-to-let. Yes,
1: there'll be less of those. But it's, it's fascinating that the whole thing about the tourism industry... And the second homes saga is how does it all get tied up in the tourism industry, which some of those communities would not economically survive without having a good summer season. So it's a little tricky on all those issues.
2: It's, it's ever thus. Local government always has to balance out priorities, doesn't it?
1: Well, it does. So the silly season has been quite spectacular. We've got two guests. Yep. Well, we'll take on with the silly season because one of our guests has just completed a report about the relationship between officers and members, which I love. Yeah. I I could deal with this forever and a day. And another of our guests is, in fact, in the hot seat as the chief executive of a district council. So our first guest of uh, this month is Alistair Cunningham, who is the chief executive of Tewksbury, which is gorgeous and stunning. We've had a major general, haven't we? was in John. charge of basra and then the army on the rhine and this time we have someone who flew fast jets with the phantom and the lightning which i find is very exciting because you can buy both those in airfix
2: and you are a geek about that sort of thing I, well you know
1: I, I have made the phantom and so alistair thank you for joining us
0: oh, no problem at all yeah. and
1: so what was it like really being at that speed is it really scary
0: it is initially. And, you know, I, in, in sort of true, honest and declaration of sort of my failure, I was one of those people who crashed and burned in the RAF. So having got you know, a lovely life of pilot's license paid for at 17, you know, paid for me to go to university and fly. And then my problems my hearing. And when I started flying fast jets and going very fast and very high, very quickly, my ears and throat decided not to talk to each other. Oh. And, uh, Yeah, so I just I uh, station canals to be technical about it. Uh, oh, well, that's very technical, very early in the morning. Yeah, the, re- yeah. But so you know, it is in, it is ridiculously incredible because you learn on you know light aircraft, which sort of poodle around the sky, and then someone straps you in the back of something, lightning particularly, which is two jet engines. You know, with some very basic controls on top, and off you go. So, yeah, not obviously exciting as local government, but um, well, obviously we were coming close-run thing.
2: Can I just ask, just to be clear for our listeners, you didn't actually crash and burn, did you?
0: <laughs> no, I probably lifted that from Top Gun. Probably, I was medically discharged. I think is probably the the, the technical term again you know, going that way. But it was yeah a long time ago in a brief a brief. Well, it was my career of choice, but obviously wasn't to be and i could have stayed in the RAF, but i i think i went and sulked but you also dj as well well that was that was my yeah my sulking from because i had been doing a bit of indie sort of djing when i was at uni sort of just just the fun of it and then i got onto the indie circuit club circuit and yeah for about four years djing in london and the northwest resident dj in lancaster sort of yeah so that was second career
1: Ah, oh. and do you ride motorbikes? No, no. <laughs> I'm just getting this whole Tom Cruise thing, because didn't he do the thing in the bar? What was that called? Oh, well, that, cocktail. Uh, oh cocktail. Cocktail, yeah, Different no, film. Cocktail. Oh, no, oh, no yeah, cocktail. But you know, oh, right. I'm just yeah. getting the, you know, it's interesting to have a sort of Tom Cruise <laughs> in local government, and you know, I like to build these people up, you know. Mm. But, you know, yeah. how it's did you get into radio. local government?
0: It was... Well, when I was DJing, I just got involved in this project. It was what was it called? It was it was about getting people back into employment and sort of because I was DJing and I wasn't working properly, if I put it that way. I've been very circumspect about that. I got on this thing, and it was just sport development. I was doing sport development, and then and that that was led to becoming a sport development officer, and then generally drifting into regeneration. Did a lot. Then worked in the charity sector for about. 10 years and was a a director of a a rural regeneration charity in Devon and I didn't know where to go from that and then I moved into Wiltshire County Council at the time as uh, head of corporate bidding you know sort of bringing external funds in authority and and then took on the economic development etc and the rest is history so it was it wasn't a career path I just
1: sort of meandered around a bit until Mm. I got into yeah the county council. Well you had an amazing experience at Wiltshire but now in Tewkesbury it's like everyone is talking about local government finances it's local government's fault apparently that there are rowdy parties in the streets and noise abatement officers are not running around I heard on LBC this week it's always nice it's always local government's fault but what you're doing now is running, you know, a beautiful location. It's one particular town, but with uh, associated sort of communities around it. How is that in your world as a task? You know, it's a, the challenges that local government really has. You know, you don't have children's services, you don't have adult services on this occasion. But what are the pressures really like behind the headlines?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because. Having retired, and I did actually retire as Joint Chief Secretary at Wiltshire, and got bored, and I was looking for something where there was a, a significant regeneration program, and Chelmsford's got that in, in, in Spades, but I think I wasn't prepared for how small a, a setup is for a small borough. And Chelmsford has the has always prided itself in the past; it doesn't anymore on having very low council tax, but it does mean every time a house is built in our borough the council tax it pays gives us just under three quid a week now triumphing bins for under three pounds a week you know it really doesn't stack up at the level of council tax And so one thing i found with the agenda is the resilience in a small borough you know i've got in most areas one or two or three people doing a role and you just don't have that, that depth and you don't have the policy team. You don't have the exec team and everyone is, is everyone's actually working. So coming from an authority, a significantly large one as chief exec, where, you know, information came to you, you made decisions, things happened. It's you know, quite a surprise for me in terms of what we're doing. And, of course, the breadth of the the services, even, a, you know, district covers with obviously without adults and children, it's still significant. And um, yeah, we're thinly spread, but the the need is still there, and I think that's the that's the interesting bit is is trying to make sure we cover all those areas of needs, especially um, now when those people who are quite you know struggling um, is a growing proportion of our population. Mm.
2: Also we were just talking about housing and statutory housing duties. Are you seeing a big rise of people turning up as homeless?
0: We're seeing a lot of people joining the, the, the housing lists and there isn't that much homelessness, but of course then you've got people return, living with parents, sofa surfing and all those sort of things that make them invisible because people on, who actually are homeless and on the street normally have other associated problems. But we are seeing, there's a number of areas where people are sleeping in cars and we, you know, which we're aware of. I think the added pressure, of course, is uh, and as you will know, with the the various migrate, migrants and refugees, et cetera, and our requirement to house those, which fully understand, but of course is putting pressure on our ability to manage our own housing, you know, homeless numbers and um, people on our our waiting list. So. It is, it is a difficult area. And, of course, it was interesting on the radio this morning talking to the developers around their 20% profit and not providing affordable housing. And the bit that didn't come out, of course, is the the fact that developers are more and more having to pick up all the other infrastructure costs. Mm-hmm. You know, the the funding from government just isn't there around education roads, et cetera, in the way it was. So we're seeing that squeeze on the affordable housing element, on new development too. So I think it's one of those areas where there is now a perfect storm. Unfortunately, local government, there are lots of areas where you've got a perfect storm.
1: The house, we were with clients last week, and it was quite interesting listening to the fact that they promote land. And now 70% of the value of the land is going into the provision of infrastructure, the the health and medical contributions, the educational contributions, which is sort of moving some people who own land not to put land into the market because they're sitting there thinking now's not the right time. The pressure's too much. You know, I'm I'm funding too much, and that, that's an interesting problem, isn't it? That there could actually be a slowing up of land coming to the market for the. The genuine house building needs of the country
0: yes and certainly for if you're in agriculture unless you're retiring you know if you look at the the what you're getting per acre now or hectare for your you know for land if, if it's being sold to a developer compared to cropping or you know working that land for the next 20 years it, it, the sums just don't add up so i think there is that whole move away from particularly funding around education and highways and you know and a lot of service areas and relying on developers to provide mm. the infrastructure not only means as you say it depresses land values to the point of why would you sell but also the infrastructure always comes in after the development and or the worst case scenario which we're seeing a lot of the infrastructure is put in but the services don't follow and that's particularly with health and even community services a number of developments to have a you know a pub in a community center that doesn't get built because no one wants to run it clearly run a pub in a if it's not if it's not going to be viable so i think there's a real pressure now and if you're not careful you get the development with all the promises in the the infrastructure and the community especially when we now we're talking about 15 minute communities and 10 minute communities Mm. things like that it's got to be economically viable, otherwise you'll get a small
1: row of shops and facilities that just stand empty, you know. Yeah, no, More I... Cynical. Sorry, no, cynical... No, no, uh, sorry to interrupt you. I, I totally agree. There is a double whammy, that farming land can be uh, bequeathed to your family without death duties. Mm. So there's a whole issue of if it's not viable or it's not going to make tons of money and or the, the tax issues, then actually I'll... I'll leave it to my children and they can decide whether they want to stay in farming. And so actually land doesn't come forward in the time frame that um, the world needs it. But the, the working from planning applications, one of the things I find amazing is finding a doctor that wants a brand new building built for them. Mm. That, that from all the other things I can sort of have sympathy with didn't print it forward or whatever else. But how many times I've sort of tried to deal with the, well, the thing that I remember is the PCTs, but all the, the various bodies within the health sector to find someone who will actually take over the medical centre. And everyone says, you can't build all these new houses because there's not a doctor in sight. And it's like, yeah, but we can't actually, you know, here's a building, you find us a doctor to go in it.
0: Yeah. And then that's, uh, well, another area where there just isn't the. You know, the cuts in in the service has meant that you know, we haven't got people coming into medical, All the all the standard thing now is people moving abroad, moving away from the NHS because the you know the the funding isn't there, the salaries aren't there, and yeah, general practice is really difficult to get GPs even in existing surgeries. So, the idea of people willing to open a new one, it, it just doesn't make sense. So I think yeah, a lot of a lot of these problems are put at the developer's door, but it's it's a wider malaise in terms of that core funding across those services that are required to support communities so i think that's the, the real
2: problem yeah so alistair it sounds like you're really coming back after out of retirement for this exciting job in local government and, and we've just listed all the problems yes, no, what are the good yeah, bits yeah
0: go on <laughs> oh well that's, that's that's a good question i think the good if i talk about Tewkesbury the you know in terms of the team there you know it's it's a small. I'll use the word boutique. I think boutique <laughs> describes it, you know, uh, rather than small. But it, the commitment of people in local government to actually do the right thing, you know, support. That's. I think that's what brings brought me back. Having worked a bit as a consultant, having been in charitable sector and, and local government, it it wasn't floating my boat. But that commitment of my colleagues, and going the extra mile. The people who just want to particularly for those people who need our support. I mean, when I started, that safety net was quite prevalent. It went out of fashion. I think we all decided we were going transactional, didn't we? And, but now, you know, I work on the principle that 85 to 90% of the people in Tewksbury don't care about local government as long as they can transact with us when they need to and everything seems to be working. But the other 10 15%, they really need our support, particularly around that health and well-being agenda. And I think working with health, working with the integrated locality partnerships, the integrated care boards, there's a huge agenda for us to tap into. And the King's Fund report that was, came out recently with the District Council Network made that very clear about where I've, we've been thinking in Choose People last year, but I think is generally where we need to be focusing on our services, because most people and want to use a website and just get their bins emptied and, you know, the road, no potholes and the kids go to school. But for a lot of people, we've really got to step up to make sure they don't drift further and further away from having, you know, go even even a, a quality of life. I wouldn't say good quality of life, but actually, you know. So that seems to be, for me, the biggest focus as well as that place shaping agenda. And whilst I was in a unitary for a long time, you know, I do think there are some things district councils do do well, and one of them is that community engagement piece, because my experience with Wiltshire was we did with all the cuts, it's an area which you can drift away from, mm. you know so i'm I'm not saying I'm an advocate for two tier, but I think
1: there are things districts do that maybe get lost in the in the unitary. Well, that was very cleverly done, because that's just taken that question right out of my hands about the differences between the the, the sort of unitary and the the two tiers. I think there is, particularly in the sort of communities that you're now representing in Tewkesbury, that ability to be close to people and not distant. Because in Wiltshire, you've got Trowbridge, you've got Salisbury, you've got Chippenham. You've got some big communities but they're spread all over. And you're right on the doorstep. Mm. Tell us about Salisbury.
0: Presumably going back to two thousand eighteen. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Novachok. I mean clearly the public inquiry's on, so I'll be you know, I won't be talking particularly about the details 'cause, you know, that's that's underway at the moment because of the the death of Dawn Sturgis in I think it was early July, wasn't it, twenty eighteen, that second incident in Amesbury. I think for me it was ironically we just had the beast from the east with that that snowstorm that came. Right. And yeah. I, the only reason I was doing Salisbury is because I've got an old Land Rover, so the one of our directors was meant to be Gold Command for that weekend, couldn't make it anywhere into the area, you know, and always an excuse to get out in the snow. I said that's fine, I'll pick it up. So I I managed the the response to that, which actually went well. We we did. You know, it was one of those things where we actually end up going to Argus's and um, curries and things like that and buying all their convection heaters because all our um, properties, their gas boilers had frozen in there because of the the, the cold and the, so they couldn't work. So we were doing things like that. But it it worked really well. We're just shutting down. I got a call from Police HQ said something else was up. Would I come across? And that was the start of it. And I think my rain reflection from looking back whilst everyone thinks that, COVID, but you know, the experience of COVID as well, because obviously I was still in local government when we had COVID. It's extremely different to when you've got a, a localised incident to when you've got a national incident like the pandemic. because And, and the big difference is the, the focus on you from national government and the national and international media. You know, I, the, it's almost national government in COVID. We're going, uh, we're going through what we went through in Salisbury with um, Novichok. And of course, the word unprecedented is being you know, used many times since. But it was because it was so different and so extreme. But I think the other bit is the perception of how the operation ran. Because the police ran it for the first three weeks in response. We set up recovery in the end of the first week. And took over at week three and ran it to, from then and probably one of the things that was interesting the whole de- decontamination and cleanup process ran under re- recovery rather than, rather than response so it was a it was a chairing the, the, the recovery coordinating group was yeah it was certainly higher profile than I had anticipated <laughs> with that relationship with COBRA and then the ministerial recovery group and also the 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 press oversight i mean you know you you really couldn't do anything without the press being involved and also with some of the things that were happening in the in the in the city and the surrounding area the first thing we know about it would be the sky helicopter it would yeah. be you know you you see it flying someone you think something else has happened so it was it, i think I, the, the the other bit of course was we we got it under control you know we were managing it through We'd actually had the royal visit in June, I think it was. The city was looking, you know, it was getting back to normal. Everyone was you know, coming in that recovery phase. And of course we had that, you know, and, and, and no one had died at that point. And then we had that awful second instant where Dawn and Charlie were taken ill with Novichok in Amesbury. And that, that I think from that point, changed how everyone worked mm. on the, the programme. Because it, it just it just changed the, the whole nature of how we're all working and thinking.
1: Well, extraordinary experience. But people don't think of local government as having that role. And it was a big, um, unique exercise, which I don't know how you could have ever prepared for it. But it looked pretty amazing from those of us who were observing through the news. And, of course, the media are always lovely and charming whenever they're right. whenever they're involved heather's just going absolutely yeah uh, on a on a sort of high note Tewkesbury. what's what's the big ambition for you before you go off and find your next excitement
0: i think the big ambition is two 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 things for me one is we we're moving to become a high performing organization uh, and that might sound like management speak but in terms of as i said the the fact we're a low-charging authority and with a very big agenda, you know, we we must ensure that um, we are performing in a way that enables us to direct resources to those people in need while serve serve the majority in a way that, you know, they, they expect in terms of service providers across the piece. So that's one of the big drivers around looking at uh, that um, Ensuring we data-driven, evidence-based interventions, the culture you know, and um, performance management of the organisation. So that's one, that's a big internal driver. The external one, I think the two big things, one around the, we're we, we doing a joint local plan with Cheltenham and Gloucester. Mm. And, you know, I don't think anyone would argue the point, the planning system is broken, so working a local plan up across three authorities and the, you know especially as halfway through the levelling up bill will potentially change the way we write plans so that's <laughs> a massive piece of work and it's it's it had slipped in in tewkesbury so that was one of the things i committed to driving forward and the other is the tewkesbury garden town which again was behind schedule and didn't have a planning policy framework around it and we're looking really to drive that forward um, and again, for a very small authority, you know, ten thousand home garden town is a big ask. But we're well, well, you know, we've got brilliant support. Had a had a very very robust gateway review undertaken by Kratos, which yeah, I had to sit down and read the outcomes. I knew it was the same. <laughs> there was they weren't sugar
1: coated. I think is the, the, the way to put it, isn't it? I but think as, I think that that is the way to put it. But, but it, you, it
0: actually and... has helped hugely that report because. Mm. The members and the new, with the new Lib Dem leadership, they have accepted those recommendations and are now fully behind reinvigorating that program, which is, is great to see. And, you know, I, I, I can't praise our members enough for having that degree of uh,
1: Well, I think that that's confidence. a, a yeah. perfect segue from one guest praising the members to another guest who's been looking at the relationship between members and officers but Alistair look thank you so much for joining us we won't keep you from other meetings that you've got today but it sounds no, like Tewkesbury is no less a challenge than all the challenges that you've faced in the past and I think it's rather lucky of Tewkesbury to get you back from retirement and get you to sort out a future vision for them so thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks Alistair no,
1: thank Thanks very much. Cheers Thank you
2: Okay, so our next guest is one of Cratus's own. No, we have Charlotte Platten, who is head of advisory at Cratus, who's written a rather lovely report, Nick, on the relationship between local government chief executives and their leaders, which is always, always of great interest to the MJ and to
3: and to everybody, frankly. Charlotte, hello, hello. Tell us about your report. What did you find? So the report covers not just chief execs and leaders, but senior officers and also some junior officers in there, which links back to some of the findings. And one of the main things was looking at the relationships between officers and members and communication of council's vision. As Alistair has just spoken about, you know, they've got a quite a clear vision for Dukesbury, as do a lot of councils. So we found that 50% of councils had an up-to-date vision and a clear vision. However, when we then kind of delved below the senior exec level in councils, there was quite a lot of, in some councils, up to two thirds of officers didn't understand what the council's vision was beyond that exec suite. And that then led us to think about the communication of council's vision, both externally and internally, because it's really important that officers across the whole council understand where the council's going, if they've got big ambitions and how they feed into that vision, alongside the external communication of that vision, which helps partners, um, businesses and residents in their district understand what the council's doing. Okay, I was quite struck by the um,
2: only 50% of councils had a strategic vision. That's probably quite low, wouldn't you, of all?
3: I think so. I think an up-to-date vision, some of them did have them, but they were out of date. And for want of a better phrase, they were stuck in a drawer. I suspect that that number is maybe a little higher now because a lot of the data we collected was before administrations changed. And obviously, there was quite a big turnover in May of council leadership and control. So I suspect that that's higher and that may have triggered more councils to getting an up-to-date vision. So I suspect if we do this piece of work, this piece of research again next year, that number might have changed quite dramatically. What I found more dramatic or more surprising was that of those that didn't have an up-to-date vision, 33%, so around a third of them, had no plans to create an up-to-date vision. They just sort of, they weren't interested or it wasn't on their agenda or really on their list of things to do. I think that that leads into the fact that officers sometimes get caught into the day-to-day delivery of services rather than the strategic vision of the council. So tell me about relationships. What's going wrong? Why are relationships so bad between officers and members? It's a good question, and I think it's a number of reasons. I think understanding, especially when you get new members, members understanding what their role is, and officers also understanding what their role is, almost having a bit of a sit down and saying, "This is your job. This is my job. Let's agree, <laughs> agree what each of our jobs are." Especially when you've got lots of new councillors, they want to get involved, they want to feel like they're included. And a lot of the some what happens sometimes in the smaller districts, um, in particular, is that especially portfolio holders consider their portfolio like their little own business, and that they're chief exec of their little business. And sometimes that can cause friction with officers. And it's just understanding their roles, I think. But I think it's something that can often be neglected in councils and a lot of them reflected, when was the last time you sat down and actually talked about this or thought about how this should work and not many of them had an answer for when they last sat down and actually properly talked about what each of their roles was. Have you got a sense about whether it's got better or worse in recent years? I think it's... My sense would be that it's got worse mainly because of officer capacity and time obviously there's lots of funding cuts there's lots of pressure on councils to deliver the same level of service for less money which puts a lot of pressure on members a lot of pressure on officers to deliver and also it puts pressure on members from their residents so it kind of doesn't cause a it's not the happiest working environment sometimes when you've got no money to deliver the same services and you've got pressure from all sides So what happens
2: if you are an officer or indeed a member in a a situation where you find you're not getting on with each other? Oh, that's a very good question. No, <laughs> is that the moment where you call in when you call in your um, HR department and
3: hand in your notice? Some experts probably. <laughs>
1: but it's an interesting question because it's it's not an HR issue, is it? in the sense of an employee relationship. No, for the members and their relationship, yeah. they would go to HR perhaps and say, oh, "I'm being, I've got a difficult person." Mm. But it's a it's an odd relationship, yeah, which is I, outside the employment law.
3: I guess the first thing is to realise that you have a problem. And a lot of them don't appreciate that they've either got a problem or something's not quite working. It's putting your finger on what isn't working uh, and maybe it's putting yeah putting the thing putting your finger on the button that that bit of the relationship isn't working rather than it being a service or a process and I think that that's something that creators have done work with councils before where they ha- things haven't been working and they haven't quite been sure why, and most of the time it's because those relationships aren't where they should be.
1: It's a difficulty I think that. Because there was no uh, training even today, I think, is quite limited. But you're not, as a cabinet member, there to run the Department for Housing. You're there to articulate the administration's aspirations, direction, policy, whatever you want to put it down, and then interrogate in a structured way The situation, like, so this is a policy that's come forward. Officers have gone off. You want to build council houses, councillor, that's fine. These are the issues. Here's the report. And then it's your job to work through that, but not tell them how to do things.
2: Does that come back down to having a vision again?
1: A little bit of the vision, but I think it's also about some training. Because even if you've run your own business, I think uh, Charlotte's seen this, where business people come into being councillors and then cabinet members. And they're like, what do you mean I'm I'm not meant to tell them how to do it? What do you mean I'm not meant to go and tell junior officers how they should be really doing the job? It's a different relationship, and it's a subtle difference in some cases. And not all the officers have been experienced in doing their jobs forever and a day, whereas older ones are able to say, well, councillor, if you say it to me this way, I can operate this way. If you say it that way, actually, I have a bit of a problem because that's not your role. And that sort of maturity, I wrote down when you were talking about this, when I was a councillor, I was very unhappy about a piece of evidence that an officer was giving in a public meeting. And I was just about to go for this person's jugular. And the councillor next to me, a lovely man called David Cunningham, just put his hand on my arm and just went, if we're unhappy with an officer, we refrain from saying it in a public meeting. And we then go to their senior officer or the chief executive to express our concern. And I think that one of the other issues that I do worry about with a lot of big changeovers in in elected members is that some of the older wise heads who you think, oh, you know, those old members of the council. But the people who've been around and know the system are not always there to give the support and advice and mentoring to the younger ones. Mm -hmm.
2: Again, I think I think we've touched on this before, but is there an issue as well, do you think, with the shift towards cabinet local government that the officers don't get that relate that face-to-face relationship with members until much more further on in their career?
3: I think there's an element of that. I think remote working hasn't helped and that was something that since the pandemic a lot of all this has been done since the pandemic. And often when we go into councils, um, we go into offices and you'd be struck by how many times we're the first ones there and the last one to leave, and so we're there nine till five. Mm. And you're kind of wandering around these buildings and there's, there's no one around. And it's been quite striking some of the work that we've done where people, we've been there on site and people have still wanted to dial into meetings rather than coming to the office to see us. So I think that that hasn't helped that kind of, and that's something that I think local government is struggling with in terms of getting people back into the office, but also making sure that members are in. Because also it takes away that that anonymity of they're, they're over there and we're over here. If you're just sort of around and you bump into them, you have a cup of tea with them. So I think that that is true that you don't meet them till much later on. I also think that due to the pandemic, councillors have stepped up and sometimes filled in roles where they've had high levels of vacancies and councillors have really tried to fill those roles. And it's been invaluable to local government where they have done that. However, it's now time to sort of step back a bit and think about how they reframe their roles and one of the councils that we did a workshop with, with officers and members, it was, it really struck me because one of the councillors was saying, oh, it all feels very formula, form, formal, you always call me councillor so-and-so, and I'd actually just really like it if around the office you just called me Mike. And they all sort of stood, sat there nodding, thinking, oh, yeah, we can just call you Mike around the office. But I couldn't believe that that just hadn't happened before. <laughs> we were just sitting down and sort of thinking, okay, this is how we want it to work. And so what would you, uh, What what's your one bit of advice that you would give to people
2: in situations where relationships are tough?
3: I think have a bit of a think about what you want and then sit down and say, this is what I want out of this relationship. And then hopefully they'll do the same and just try and have a bit of a chat about it and try and meet in the middle. And just really think about, go back to the Nolan principles, really think about what your role as a member is, what their role of a, as an officer is. And then just try and work it out. I know that sounds very simple, and it's quite difficult sometimes. But I think just dedicating that time to sitting down, no distractions for an hour or so, and just having a cup of tea and saying, "Actually, I'm not happy with this," you may well find out that they're also not happy about that, and you can just stop doing some of the stuff. What would you
2: say, Nick? Yeah,
1: well, I think the Nolan principles. Actually, I read we reread them not long ago for a job, and they are great as a tool. You don't need to write anything more, just sit with... But I think there is a... I think the politicians have to accept that they they need a strong working relationship. The stronger the working relationship they have with their officers, their lead officers, the better. And, you know, it won't always work. It won't be natural. Some officers are brilliant at the job, but not the most gregarious or outgoing character so you have to learn about each other and I think if you can find that respect of the vision and the drive you know an officer who has a lead member that wants to do something has got to be exciting to work with rather than someone who oh no do I really have to do that oh not another report and so if you can get that balance then it's a really exciting thing It's so, but very, I think it's very tough and you know, I, the COVID has caused I think it to really have a rough time. You I know, mean, I was at, I was facilitating a meeting, and the assistant director asked me to introduce him to his cabinet member because he hadn't met the cabinet member, and I'd only just walked in the door. You know, and they were nervous about making that. So that even the fundamentals of saying hello, how are you, and by the way, I'm looking forward to working with you. Have become quite tricky.
2: Yeah, there's, there's also there was a lot of command and control management over COVID as well that, yeah. that to a large extent excluded members because yeah. it was an emergency situation, and I think that sort of damaged quite a lot of relationships as well.
1: Yeah, and I think I, w- I was quite taken back when this report came out about how clear the issues are, and they are there, and, and I know that officers are struggling with them. But I also, you know, we do, I've, I've watched tons of planning applications going through in my time. And um, one of my colleagues was sitting in one in Guildford last night, enjoying himself no end, uh, which is why I got no end of text messages, I think. But there was one council in Surrey where I watched on, on the broadcast members talking to officers in a way, going back to that example that I was given by David Cunningham, Don't ever say it in public. Go and see their employer if you're unhappy with the quality of their work and everything else. And I saw planning officers treated with such disrespect. Now, if they're that bad, they shouldn't be there. And you should be taking the actions, but not talking to them. You know, elected members are rarely professionals of planning or professionals of anything, actually, in what they have to deal with licensing or whatever the subject. But they weren't interrogating in a professional way. And the fact that we can see so much online now, I think that members really have to start to think about their contribution to this relationship. And they might find that officers actually move forward with them and say, wow, I really welcome this conversation. But there's a conversation that's definitely from this report needed to be had
2: good advice and then if all else fails they can always call in craters for mediation between the two and then if it gets really bad mj's job advertising's always there
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, beautiful how you got plug in for all both organizations but charlotte i think that's a great piece of work and it and it's not critical is it the report i think it's it's just it's probably telling everyone what they already know and if it's if we've your report is doing any good at the moment, it's because people are getting it out and accidentally leaving it on the desk of someone who possibly needs to start the conversation. So brilliant. Thanks for joining us. Thank
2: you for having Thanks, Charlotte.
1: Thank you. So two brilliant guests. Yep. Some great conversation. I love um, Alistair coming out of retirement and taking on the challenge. And you sort of realise the amazing scope in, in local government from nerve agents to pandemics to massive, great, big visions of new towns and new growth and running councils, but I loved his comment about the dedication of the officers, which then you link in with Charlotte Platten's report yep. and her contribution. So yeah. good episode, I think. Yeah. Now the great thing is we have we do have audience. We have a listener who's been fantastic. So. To the very lovely person who texts me over the weekend to say how much they enjoyed it, thank you. You made my weekend. It's
2: nice to know we have a listener.
1: It's yes, I think it was Terry Wogan who is uh, thought it was just yeah. one listener was there for him, and it's nice to know we've got that. And on that note, until next month.
0: Thank you for listening
1: to Our World is Local, brought to you by Craters Communications.
0: Copyright Craters Communications.